All right. Well, as the kids head out, take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 16. If you have a phone or a, or a tablet with you, feel free to open that up as well, obviously, and, and follow along with us. We're going to be in, in Acts chapter 16 on the bulletin that you got, the worship guide that you got as you came in. If you turn it over to the back, you'll see there are some notes that you can use to follow along with us. also want to let you know up front that I've been trying to put some additional material on our website. If you go to fbcbsl.com, you'll see under the resources tab, there's some additional information. So I, it says Acts 15 dash additional information and then Acts 16 additional information. There are just some things that come up during the sermon or in the chapter because we're covering a chapter at a time. It's hard to get everything. And so I'm trying to put that material out there in a way that you'll be able to access, you'll be able to do some additional research, that type of thing. There are some very difficult issues that we're going to run into this morning, and not all of it do we have time to address right now. And so I put that out there on the website, and we'll try to get that out there in the best format possible so, so people will be able to access it. Um, if you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, know that this coming Saturday— our children's ministry is going to a pumpkin patch. They're going to do a corn maze. Uh, my son is already bringing, he said he's going to bring his hatchet if he gets lost in the corn maze to, uh, to work his way out. So he pretty much thinks he's a ninja anyway. And so he's going to channel his inner ninja and uh, escape from the corn maze. But we've got that coming up as well as that parent-child dedication on Sunday. So a lot of kids things coming up. Um, if it doesn't feel like we have very many teenagers this morning, uh, a lot of our teenagers are over in Gulf Shores. They took a little retreat this weekend to get away to Gulf Shores, spend some time studying God's Word and worshiping together. And so they're over there. They're, uh, I know several people are off school tomorrow or off work for Columbus Day, and so they're, they're over that direction. But all right, let's get into Acts, Acts chapter 16 this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. And, and read down several verses, and then I'll pray and we'll get into the, the content from there. Verse 1, Paul came to Derby, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Then verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district in Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. 
on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So this lady was a businesswoman. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So you may have seen her on Bourbon or down in the French Quarter at some point. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And then in verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. God, we thank you for your word. So rich, so powerful. God, help us to be active readers. We want to be so careful about just picking up the Bible, reading a bunch of words, going on to the next thing. God, help us to engage with your word, not just to know it, but to do it. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds in the next few minutes. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as we get to Acts chapter 16, we're moving into Paul's second missionary journey. Essentially, when you get into Acts, you're gonna see three missionary journeys unfolding. Up on the screen, the first slide I have for you is what is a picture of the first missionary journey. Now, I don't have a cool uh, laser, unfortunately, to point out stuff, but I might have one next week. But if you can see off on the east side, on the right side, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and then on the right and the bottom is Jerusalem. And then you go up a little bit on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and you get to a place called Antioch. Antioch is one of those places in Scripture that's a key base for Paul. He spends a lot of his time there in Antioch. Antioch is right on the border of what we would know today as modern-day Syria and Turkey. Right there at that border is Antioch. And so you can see in his first missionary journey, or if you can't see, just pretend and make me feel better that you can see it. Maybe you have a, a map in the back of your Bible you can look at. But you can see where the first missionary journey mostly takes place in a pretty small area. Now, when we go to the next slide, you can see in the second missionary journey, do you see the way the lines spread, how the area that Paul covers is so much larger? He starts in Antioch, but he and Barnabas have this dispute. Barnabas wants to go one way. He wants to take John Mark. Paul wants to go another way. He wants to take Silas. And so it says at the end of Acts 15 that Barnabas and John Mark, they go to Cyrene. Cyrene is that island out in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul and Silas, they go to the area of Syria and Cilicia, which is near Tarsus. What happens after Barnabas and Paul have their dispute and they go separate ways? 
essentially they go home to their mommies. Uh, they, they go home. Barnabas is from Cyrene, so he goes back to Cyrene. Paul is from Tarsus, from that Cilicia area, so he goes back there. So they seem to go to their homes where they grew up. And then from there, Paul starts to travel to Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And after that, it gets a little bit confusing because you get down into chapter 16 and you get into verse 6 and it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Okay, so Phrygia and Galatia is going to be in what we know as modern day Turkey. And it's going to be right there in the middle of that area where it says Antioch right now. So it says they traveled there but they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Here's what it looks like is happening. Paul is trying to get to a city called Ephesus. And so he thinks he needs to get to Ephesus, which is in this area of Asia, and he's trying to get there, but for some reason, somehow, God's Spirit won't let him get there. And it says in verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Oops. Yeah, go back to that map just for a second. Sorry, guys. When you get back to the map, Mysia and Bithynia are at the top, up there along the top area of Turkey. So Paul tries to go west. That doesn't work out for him. He tries to go north. That doesn't work out for him. It says the Spirit of Jesus would have not allowed them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Okay, so Troas is right where it says Asia, just up and left of there is Troas, right on the border of Western modern-day Turkey. So they're in Troas, and Paul has this vision. During the night, he had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then look in verse 10. If you still have your Bible open or or you have your phone available, look in verse 10, because this is very key for the book of Acts. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Did you see a change there in verse 10? You get a pronoun. So all the English English grammar people get excited here, okay? We have a change of pronoun. We have a first-person plural pronoun. It says we. This is the first place in the book of Acts you're going to get this indication of we. What it means is Luke. Luke, who was the one that wrote the book of Acts, is now joining in on the trip. So something happens here. Either Luke lives at Troas or he was visiting Troas and Luke joins with the group. It says, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And then in verse 11, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi. So Paul gets to Philippi And Philippi was a leading city of of this time. Philippi had a famous medical school. Guess what Luke's profession was? Luke was a doctor. Luke probably went to med school in Philippi. He may have even been from Philippi. So Philippi is this leading Roman city of the ancient times with with a famous medical school there that people were involved in. Paul gets to Philippi. And in Philippi, you have something very interesting happen. Two people are mentioned to have been converted. The first is a female business owner. If anyone ever talks to you about Christianity or the Bible being chauvinistic or or being anti-female, take them to Acts chapter 16. 
Because the first person who comes to faith in Jesus when the gospel moves into Europe is a female business owner. So there is no indication in the spread of the gospel that it is in any way chauvinistic. It is in any way anti-female. So you have this lady, Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth. In other words, she was pretty wealthy. She did, she did pretty well for herself in business. It even says she owned a home. Not everybody owned a home, especially females at this time. And so she was a well, well-to-do business owner. And then another person who is converted is the jailer. So you have a Jewish businesswoman, someone who worships the Jewish God, and then you have this jailer, this Roman military person who is also converted. So Philippi is this important turning point in the spread of the gospel. But in the middle of this story, we find this really interesting verse. Look in verse 17. Or actually, let's start in 16, just to get the context. Because we see kind of the core of the mission that's happening here. In verse 16, it says, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Okay, look at your translation that's in front of you. If you have your Bible or your phone open, look at your translation there. In, in verse 16, it says a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Does anybody's translation have the word python or a reference to a snake there? Does anybody have a python or a snake reference there? Okay, I didn't think so. The word behind divination, the word behind being able to predict the future is the word python. There was a myth in this area. There was a legend in this area that a, a famous fortune teller resided and she had the spirit of the python, the spirit of the snake that was able to speak through her and predict the future. Let me just be upfront with you. I, I don't do snakes, okay? I just need to be really honest. If we're ever walking along together somewhere and we come up on a snake, I'm gonna be in your arms at that moment. Like, it's just, I, I just don't mess with that. I, I was playing golf with some people this last weekend. They're over in the tall grass looking for golf balls. Uh-uh. It goes there, it stays there because there might be a snake. So I'm getting ready last night for the message this morning. What do I dream about last night? Oh, snakes. It was awful. It, it was absolutely terrible. So uh, I, I don't do snakes. But there was this legend, there was this magical myth at this time that in this area, there was a, a fortune teller and, and there were empowered, possessed by the spirit of a snake, this slave girl. And it says in verse, verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. All right. Anyone who's had kids, grandkids, neighbor kids has had this happen. Mom, mom, mommy, 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 mom, mom. What is it? Stop, you're annoying me. You just keep going with the same thing. Anyone who's ever had anybody trail along and say the same thing to them over and over and over again, after a certain point, gets annoyed and just says, what is it? Stop. But we have to ask the question, why is Paul getting so annoyed? Why is Paul getting so frustrated with her? Look back in verse 17, and guys, pull up that next slide. 
In verse 17, it says, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Here's what I want to present to you this morning. I want to present to you that one of the reasons that Paul got so frustrated and so annoyed with this girl is because she is telling something here that would have confused the people who were listening. Here's what I mean by that. There's a phrase up there in blue. If you're colorblind or you, don't, you can't see that far, I'm sorry, but the phrase that's in blue is most high God. Most high God in this context would not have automatically pointed them to the one true God. It would have just meant whatever is your highest God. If anyone has ever been to an AA meeting, and, and hear me say from the very beginning, I am not saying anything bad about AA. There is, there is a good place for that. If, if you're in addiction recovery, you need to be in those groups consistently. But one of the things that AA will talk about is higher power type language. And what happens is that higher power, that spiritual force, when you're in an AA group, can be whatever you need it to be at that point, or whatever that higher power is for you. And frankly, that's about the only way that AA could operate as it does. But then there are other programs like Celebrate Recovery, and the whole point of that is to provide a 12-step program where we become very particular about what we mean by that higher power or that spiritual force. What this girl is doing right here is she is talking about Most High God but it's a reference to whatever your highest power is. And guess what? We live in a world where people can use spiritual terms and they can mean all kinds of things by them. You could run into someone and they could talk about the Son of God, but they do not mean the same thing we mean by when we say Son of God. You can run into someone and they could say salvation, and they don't mean the same thing that we mean when we say salvation. It's not, one, it's not the same thing just to use a spiritual term and then assume that everyone understands what we mean by that. Which means, parents, grandparents, your children don't just need to believe in God. They need to know the God that we believe in. Theology matters not for adults but for little kids. We want our kids to understand the God that we believe in. When we say God, what do we mean by that? Because guess what? They're going to hear the name God a lot at school. Maybe in not the best context, but they're going to hear the name God as they go through life. They need to know what we mean when we refer to God. What we're getting at here is the idea of pluralism. The idea that you have your God I have my God, let's just leave each other alone and we can mean by God whatever we want to mean. Except that doesn't work. Because when we're talking about God as he reveals himself in scripture, the one true God who created all things, the God who is father, who is rescuer, who is redeemer, who is judge, we need to know who we're talking about when we refer to that God. And so when this girl is saying most high God, she's just referring to any spiritual power. Here's the second thing, though. Notice up there in green, and I know it doesn't stand out well, but in green on that final line, it says the way to be saved. These men are telling you the way to be saved. Okay, one more geeky grammar moment for the morning. Does anybody know what a definite article is versus an indefinite article? 
If you're a school teacher, a definite article is T-H-E, the or the, however you want to say it. An indefinite article is a or an. In the Greek, in the original language here, there is no article. There's no indication of should this be the way to be saved or should it be a way to be saved. In the original language, there is no T-H-E that shows up in front of the word way. Every other time that the term way is used in the book of Acts, it has an article with it. This time, it has no article in the original language. Here's what I think this girl is doing. She says, these men are telling you a way to be saved. In other words, if you want to be saved their way, that's okay. If you want to be saved another way, that's okay. And guess what? We live in that world. We live in the world in which they put God at the top of a mountain, and however you get to God is okay. You take your way, I'll take my way, we'll all get to God. There are different phrases for this. There are different terms. Some people call it inclusivism. I think that's the word I put on your notes. Some people call it universalism. It's simply the idea that there are multiple ways to get to God. You do not have to go through Jesus. But there's so much danger there because the consistent message of Scripture and the consistent message of the book of Acts is that there is one way to be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it's on your notes. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just for a moment, let the weight of that sink into you. There is one way to be saved. There is no other name under heaven, given among men by which we might be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know what phrases people use in response to that? Bigoted is is one. Closed-minded is another. Exclusive is another. Hard-headed, and then they get worse, worse from there. When we say There is one way to be made right with God and it comes through Jesus Christ. We need to understand the weight of that significance. We need to understand the weight of that in scripture. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is is how we're going to live our lives as a result of that. If the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus, then all of our lives is about All of our lives are about making Jesus known because he is the way to be made right with God. If Jesus is a way or one way among many others, then let people go their own way. Don't bother them. Let them do their own thing and you do your own thing and everybody will be okay in the end. Except that's not what scripture teaches. It's not what God shows us about his plan for salvation. To help us understand this better, I want to show you a quick video in which someone tries to explain what this looks like when it's lived out in our world. So watch this video here just for a second. Do we really believe that everyone who is not trusted in Christ for salvation will experience damnation when they die? I'm standing right now in northern India, home to 600 million people. They estimate that about 0.5% of the people around me are evangelical Christian. 
0.5% who have trusted in Christ for salvation. That means 597 million people surround me right now who don't have Christ. Many of them are Hindu, worshiping endless false gods. Many of them are Muslims. Some of them are Buddhists. I'm actually standing right now near the border of Nepal and Tibet at a Tibetan Buddhist training ground. There's a lot of talk right now about universalism, a lot of dialogue and debate and discussion. It all revolves around what happens to people who die without Christ. I hope that no one who knows me as either pastor or person would question or wonder where I stand on this issue. The crux of the Bible is clear and the story of redemption is sure. The just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women in their rebellion, and he has sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that everyone who believes in him, who turns from themselves and trusts in Christ, will be reconciled to God forever. And likewise, the converse is true. Everyone who trusts in themselves and turns from God will be condemned by God forever. This is the gospel that was proclaimed by Jesus. This is the gospel that was proclaimed by Peter and Luke and Paul and John. This is the gospel that's been proclaimed by Christians for the last 2,000 years. And this is the gospel that's being declared and defended so well by so many over the last few weeks. But my question is, do we really believe what we're saying? These 597 million people, are all of them going to an eternal hell because they don't have Christ? And there's really only two simple options here. Either number one, we believe, Allah Rabbel, that all of these people will one day experience God's everlasting love in heaven. Or number two, we believe, Allah Orthodox Christianity, that one day all of these people will experience God's eternal wrath in hell. And how we answer that question determines everything about how we live. The reality is, if we believe that everyone's going to be okay in the end, if we embrace universalism, however it is cloaked, then we're free to live our lives however we want, to sit back as easygoing Christians in comfortable churches, because in the end, all of these masses are going to be okay. They're going to be fine. However, if we believe that people around us 597 million people in northern India, 6,000 plus people groups who have never even heard the gospel. If we believe that they are going to an eternal hell without Christ, then we don't have time to play games with our lives. and We don't have time to play games in the church. We have a mission that demands radical urgency. Here's the deal. Intellectual universalism is dangerous, thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay. But functional universalism is worse. Living like in the end, everyone is going to be okay. So let's fight them both. In our heads, in our hearts, let's hold fast to the truth of this gospel. And in our lives, let's sacrifice everything we have. Our possessions and our plans and our dreams, our safety, our security, if necessary, our own lives to make this gospel known among all peoples. That is the only possible response for people who really believe this book. 
I always want to be honest with you and, and open. And, and let me just shoot as straight as I can. Few issues, few questions keep me up at night as, as much as that one, as, as much as that reality. God, how does this make sense? God, how does this impact my life? God, how do we live in light of, of that reality? And I don't want to be simplistic. I don't want to just pass over this. But at the same time, let's not run away from hard questions. That that does no good in the church. That does no good for our kids who are going off to college. That does no good when you go to work. If we just run away from hard questions and say, I want to pretend like those don't exist, that, that doesn't help us. That doesn't prepare us. That doesn't affect our hearts and our minds. And so I want us to deal with this question. And how do we deal with it? Well, first we deal with it humbly. The only way you can respond to God's word in this sense is with tears in your eyes and with your knees bent. If there's any judgmentalism in your heart, if if your heart is cold as a result of this, that's not helpful. We have to be humble. We have to be honest. We have to deal with this in a way that makes sense of all of the issues. If you have more questions, if these types of questions cause weird thoughts in your heart and in your mind, know that that's really normal because we're dealing with life and death here. We're dealing with eternity. We're dealing with how people are saved. And so I've put a lot of information on on our website. Feel free to go check that out. If you have more quests saved. And so what is the response to that? The response to that is we have one life to live. There's one more word up there that's in color and this is our last point, our last two minutes. The word servants is in red. Look back at what this lady this girl says, she says, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Do you see the irony there? What is this girl? She's a servant, except she's a servant possessed by an evil spirit in order that a few men, a few men can make money off of her. Who are Paul and Silas here? They are servants but not of a few greedy men. They are servants of the Most High God so that all people can experience salvation. You might hear me say there's only one way to be saved and that's through Jesus. And you think that's so narrow-minded. Do you never get out? Do you never travel? How can you say that? But the message that all people can be saved through Jesus is not exclusive It is the most inclusive message anywhere. It's the reality that it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter what religious tradition you grew up in. It doesn't matter any of those things. What matters is that Jesus Christ has made possible salvation for everyone. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. And so what I would ask you this morning is that you would look at your life and say, am I worshiping the one true God? Have I experienced salvation through Jesus Christ? And then do I recognize that I have one life to live? Hebrews 9, 27 says that men are appointed to die once and then face judgment. We have one life to live. And so you say, Owen, you're telling me to quit my job and walk down to Bourbon Street and hold up a sign that says you're going to hell? No. In fact, I'm telling you to do just the opposite. I'm telling you to go to work tomorrow. 
I'm telling you to go to school on Tuesday. I'm telling you to do what you would normally do, but do it with everything channeled toward Jesus Christ. That is, you go to work, you go to school, you go to your hobbies, you spend time with your families, you're living your one life in order to be used by God to proclaim and display Jesus to all people because he is the hope of salvation. I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. After we pray, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a song about focusing our attention on Jesus. As we're singing, if you just need to spend time praying, searching your own heart, I'll be up here, I'll be glad to pray for you. Know that the response time doesn't end when we walk out these doors. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have concerns, let's talk about them. But the one thing we cannot do is waste our one life. May we give it for God's glory.